then. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Kill you all. You don't know what death is. We belong dead. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. Only a butt. Free for your life. <laughs> <laughs> to a new world of parts and monsters. Hello, friends, and welcome to Pods and Monsters. My name is Robert, and with me, as always, is... Anthea. And today, we are going to be celebrating the 4th of July. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, on today's episode, no, we will not be talking about the history of our country and the Declaration of Independence and that wonderful story, but we are going to be talking about one of our favorite 4th of July films, maybe our favorite 4th of July film, and what is that, Inthea? Jaws. Jaws. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. Jaws is the perfect 4th of July film. Is it? Takes place on 4th of July. There's Mm -hmm. a beach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. There's no fireworks. Um, no. There are no fireworks. It's in my top 10 films of all time. One of my favorites. Um, Same. Yeah, so you know it pretty well, right? Yes. I spent a lot of my youth watching Jaws and a lot of my adult life watching Jaws. I've watched it a lot. Have you seen it in the theater? No. I would really like to. I've seen it in the theater a few times, and I'll say that it's one of my favorite movies that I've ever seen in the theater. I just wish I was able to see it and not know what happens. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. I do get a little jealous about people who are our age and are seeing things that we've grown up with and i'm i just can't even imagine what it's like being a full-grown adult and watching a movie for the very first time yeah like that that i just hold so near and dear in my heart yeah i usually ask before we discuss the film what your idea of the film is but since you know it so well i imagine uh you just know the film right yeah i mean i would think so i did take a moment to write some stuff down so without spoiling it or getting too detailed, what what did you write down as the general theme of Jaws? Wait, what do you mean not spoiling it? Until we get to it in our rundown of the movie. I have like three sentences. Okay. Based on a book. Yeah. Shark terrorizes little town in, I put Maine, but it's New England. It's either, it might be Massachusetts since they always talk about Boston and the mm. accents. And then I put Brody, Hooper, Quint. All right. So we watched Jaws this week. Uh, again, Inthe and I have both seen it countless times. For both of us, it's one of our favorite movies. So we watched it and took down some notes. And let's uh, go through the movie and talk about it. Let's do it. 
So how do we open? Opening credits. Again, I really love opening credits, just in general. I really like when they take a moment to set a mood, and uh, Jaws definitely does. So we end up hearing uh, a sonar-ish kind of sound, as well as underwater noises, and the theme slowly starts to come in. Yeah, and you kind of hear uh, like that sonar noise is kind of, I think, like seagulls or something. And it's very reminiscent of how Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds opens. Oh. Could be a reference. You know, so I will say this. One of the things I really love about this podcast is normally I just sit down and I'm like, I'm going to enjoy this movie and absorb whatever. With this podcast, I've had to, not had to, but I just want to really super absorb it. So I feel like a sponge and I'm letting a movie completely wash over me. (laughs) And granted, I've seen this so many times. I know how this begins, but I didn't pay attention to like the fact that it starts with a little sonar. It's so faint. And then the theme comes in and it's so low. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. So we have this slow buildup of the music. And this is all from an underwater creature's point of view. This is, and I think going into it, everyone knows since it's called Jaws, it's about a shark. So this is presumably the point of view of the shark. Right. Which a lot of the shark attack scenes in this movie are from the point of view of the shark, which I love. I end up loving the fonts in this beginning. We have Jaws and it's this big blocky lettering, but then the lettering also has some fluid movement in it. It's blocky letters, but they're together and they're touching and they kind of flow together. And there's a little Mm -hmm. bit like reminiscent of water going through it. Mm -hmm. And of course, with the music, it's so ominous. So from here, our very first super intense scene. I love how this, it's like a slow buildup during these credits. And then we go pretty much right into the action. Well, they're first on the beach. Yes, but this is, I mean, that's the buildup. It's like the buildup of being in this ocean and you have like a very, very ominous music Mm kind of, and it goes directly into this bonfire on the beach. And there's a young gentleman who's smoking and drinking and he's eyeing this lovely lady. Her name is Chrissy. (laughs) She like yells it. (laughs) Where are you going? (laughs) Swimming. Swimming. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they take off running down the beach and he's very inebriated and can't keep up with her and she ends up disrobing and he is also and she ends up beautifully swimming out into the ocean Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the most iconic wonderful shots from this movie is the shark's point of view looking up at her yes and you just see basically a silhouette of her swimming now this shot is almost identical to the shot in Creature from the Black Lagoon of the creature looking up at Julie Adams swimming. Oh really? Yeah, it's very reminiscent and I believe is inspired from Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's amazing. So we have our first shark attack and this shark attack is so brutal. It's so uncomfortable. She gets kind of almost playfully tugged, um, even though <laughs> just tickling it's her feet. very horrible for her. And then she is just dragged and is screaming, yeah. um, is being pulled under, is going back and forth, which is also another iconic image yeah. from this movie. And it cuts back and forth between her violent shouting, asking for help. Mm-hmm. And the kid that she was with, 
being passed out on the beach and falling asleep. And you don't hear her at all at the beach because she's out by a buoy. So she's at the furthest limits that you should go. And she's getting eight up (laughs) by this shark. She's a really good actress to uh, pull that. Like she really looks like she's struggling. Oh, yeah. They were originally going to have some sort of hydraulic system that would move her around back and forth. But she wasn't comfortable with that because she wanted to be able to... um, release herself if she got in trouble because she couldn't cry out for help because that's what her character's doing. Mm -hmm. So she worked with them to sort of fashion some sort of release where she could just tug on a certain rope or something like that and she'll be free automatically. And to get her to move back and forth so violently, there was basically ropes that would be around her and there were men on both sides of the beach that would just run back and forth tugging each side basically having a tug of war the tugging looked very violent when she would be tugged to the left she would swing her body to the right to make it seem even more violent than it actually was Mm -hmm. but uh there's rumors that it was very painful for her and that she kind of got hurt but she says that's not true Okay. I'm glad to hear that that's not the case. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, when you're doing a movie out on the ocean like this and you have all the water splashing, there's going to be audio fighting with her voice, her scream. So they had to ADR her voice afterwards, Mm -hmm. meaning they had to re-record her voice. And Richard Dreyfuss walked into the studio one day or the soundstage that they were doing it in. And he walks in and he just sees Steven Spielberg towering above her, pouring water down her throat as she's screaming. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And uh, there's also another little uh, audio cue in this moment, isn't there? What? There is a very aggressive instrument. Uh Uh-huh. There's a very aggressive xylophone. (laughs) (laughs) As you said, the most angry xylophone you've ever heard. It is. And they're just such a whimsical instrument. And it only, I think it plays like three or four notes, but it's so aggressive and angry. (laughs) And it's actually very jarring. That's great. That's so good. John Williams. One of his best scores. So from here, we end up cutting to the next morning uh, with Chief Brody and his wife, who this really sets up how wonderful their relationship is. I really fell in love with them more watching this movie. Uh His wife. Watching it this time. Yeah, watching it this time. His wife is just so amazing and they're very believable as a married couple there's a couple of scenes in this movie where you get a little peek into their relationship Mm -hmm. and i just this is one of those it's just them waking up and having these very simple conversations gonna get in the car over there (laughs) (laughs) and you get to find out a lot about them uh, that they had just purchased this house he's noticing that the sunlight comes in later so Already he's like, you find out that he's kind of grumbling and he doesn't really like what's happening. He's not 100% comfortable in this environment Yeah, is what you get right off the bat from him. And that he's a strict New Yorker. He doesn't know much about the ocean and everyone has a Boston accent. Yep. He gets a call to go down to the beach. And from here, we end up uh, seeing a wonderful shot of the billboard for Amity Island, which comes back later on so he's talking to the kid about how this woman's gone missing her clothes her purse are all still on the beach and he says that he fell asleep and that she must have drowned so that's what they're there they're there to look for a body of someone who's drowned as they're scavenging or walking down the beach there's another police officer down the beach who 
just starts blowing this whistle and they take off running down there and you find they we get this really just horrible shot i mean it's great of a hand and a bunch of hair and some crabs and the on the beach washed up on the beach yeah and when they were originally going to do that shot the special effects guys made a fake hand which Steven Spielberg thought looked too fake. So he found one of the females on set and asked if he could uh, bury them, Uh, you know, just keep their hand out. So it's a real person's hand in there. And they had the little crabs around, but the crabs weren't moving enough. So uh, someone had the hot idea of pouring some hot coffee on top of them to make (gasps) them move. No. But no animals were hurt in the filming. So Brody ends up going back to the police, uh, the police office is that oh is that a phrase police station there you go (laughs) (laughs) okay so (laughs) chief michael scarn here (laughs) so brody goes to the police station And here (laughs) we get some really great dialogue. So one of the things that I really, really, really love about this movie is all of (laughs) how bombarded he is with like the island minutia. (laughs) This is a sleepy little island. And the worst thing happening this morning to other people, obviously, is that (laughs) there are kids from a karate class that are karate chopping the fences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's actually a deleted scene where the mayor says, I got some kids that are karate my fence all day. <laughs> and Polly, his secretary, brings it up. And then when he walks out and goes onto the street, he <laughs> passes the man whose fences are karate chopped and the fences <laughs> are like karate chopped. <laughs> and I'm living for all of this. This detail. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does such a good job to show just how this town has never had, you know, anything bad happen to mm-hmm. it, where he's the sheriff or the chief. And that's the worst possible thing that could happen in these people's eyes is that the fence is being broken by some kids. Yes. Oh, and that man also holds up like a wheel from a bicycle and is just like flabbergasted yeah. that these kids messed up <laughs> the wheel. <laughs> And what I also love that Jaws does, and lots of movies from the 70s do this, is when multiple conversations are going on at the same time. Yes. I I love that. In the hardware shop, you'll hear one, and as he's moving through, that one fades out, you go into a new one, fades out, goes into a new one. Um, And so you're catching bits and pieces of these people that are native to the island. Yeah. It really sets up an environment. It makes it natural. Yeah. Because that's real life. That's what's always happening. Yeah. So Chief Brody gets a phone call from the medical examiner and he's typing up his report of the body that they've found. And he puts the cause of death as shark attack, which is what's given to him from the medical examiner. He immediately says that he needs to close off the beaches and that they need to make signs. Oh, as he's leaving, he ends up hearing about Boy Scouts out on the bay. But his main goal at the moment to get stuff to make signs because they don't actually have any signs because why would Amity Island ever close their beaches? Yeah. And as he's walking through this area, you see the mayor come out of one of the buildings and he's wearing a really awesome jacket with little anchors on it. His name is Mayor Vaughn. Chief Brody, after giving all the signed stuff to one of his deputies, he 
plans on taking a ferry out to the Boy Scouts to get them out of the water. And as he drives on to like this ferry raft thing, or he walks onto it. Yeah. You can visibly see he's uncomfortable. The mayor shows up and the mayor drives on. He has the medical examiner with him and some real shady weird guy that I don't know what his purpose <laughs> is other than being like the mayor's lackey. He seems like a like a publicity guy or someone like a public relations, Yeah, public relations. You know, he takes the photo later. But this guy, his real name is Carl Gottlieb, and he was the main screenwriter of the film. OK, I've heard this name before. And this is such a great shot to even think about doing a whole shot with a car where that's basically everything steady except the background because they're on this ferry going mm-hmm. across the water. Mm-hmm. It's so neat. This really sets up the dynamic between Brody and the mayor. The mayor is constantly putting Brody in uncomfortable positions, is always cornering Brody so that Brody feels pressured. Brody has nowhere to go. He can't jump into the water. He can't drive off of this raft. He can't. They're <laughs> in the middle of this harbor bay area yeah and the medical examiner takes back everything that he said Mm -hmm. he's like it was a boat it was a fishing accident fishing boat accident well yes i believe it could be a fishing accident (laughs) and the mayor's like we cannot close the beaches we're not closing the beaches from here we got his super iconic quote i'm gonna say the word iconic a bunch by the way (laughs) yeah this line is probably my favorite line from the movie Mm mm-hmm It's the mayor saying it's all psychological. You yell barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. It's really good. (laughs) It's really good. And it's like, he just doesn't want anyone to know. And this is a really big moment for the island. It's a very important weekend for the island. The mayor is so good. He's played by Murray Hamilton. Mm Mm-hmm. He is in one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes, actually. Oh, which one? It's the second episode ever done of the Twilight Zone. What's it called? It's called One for the Angels, and it's the one starring Ed Wynn. Mm-hmm. You know, the voice of the Mad Hatter. And Murray Hamilton plays Death. You'd require a delay until... Uh... Until I make a pitch. You know, the kind of pitch I was talking to you about there. One for the angels, you mean. Uh, next up, we are on the beach, and the beach is popping. There's a lot of people there. And the first establishing shot of this beach is a little boy begging his mom to go back into the water. And she is very reluctant about letting him go back in. She calls him by his first and last name, which is Alex Kittner. And she reluctantly says, you can go back in. During this time of people on the beach, Brody knows something's out there, and he's keeping an eye Making sure everyone's okay and just kind of waiting for something to happen or hopefully not happen. Yep. He's hyper vigilant, hyper aware of what is happening in the water. He's looking at people swimming. You see um, the dog, Pippet. Such a cute dog, by the way. Oh, super cute. Oh, and I love he has his little stick and he's just like, yeah, a bunch of kids and teenagers living their best life and people in the water. And there's a lot of the same kind of thing where you're um that you experienced earlier on in the movie in the general store where it's just a lot of conversations a lot of getting to know people on the beach as chief brody is looking out he gets distracted by this older gentleman named harry who comments about how he doesn't go into the water we know all about you chief you don't go in the water at all do you oh harry (laughs) (laughs) um and it's i believe that earlier on ellen is the wife's name she'd comment that he absolutely detests the water 
doesn't get in, doesn't know how to swim. Yeah. Nothing. Um, And and, well, before Harry comes up to Brody, there's a shot of someone lying on a floaty or something in the ocean. And you just see a little gray piece come up and you think it's going to be the shark, but it's just the bad hat that Harry's wearing. (laughs) And then later, Chief Brody says the classic line. Some bad hat, Harry. (laughs) Uh, So with all these people in the water, there's a lot of splashing. The dog doing his thing. I love the way this scene is cut. Did you notice the cuts in this scene? Um, Probably not as well as you did. So Steven Spielberg wanted to give the illusion that all of this was one scene with no cuts. Obviously, there were cuts. So what Spielberg did was he had people walk in front of the camera. And whenever they would walk in front of the camera covering everything, that's where the cut would happen. And then it would cut back to Brody looking at the ocean, then cut back to the ocean itself. Mm -hmm. So there's always something kind of wiping in and off on the camera to give the illusion that it's not cutting it's just someone walking by yeah that's what that's totally how i read that this scene yeah was done very well yeah because when you're like sitting down somewhere and you're observing what's happening usually there's people that are walking in front of you so you don't get to see every single moment yeah and your eyes dart around so yeah that's really really great from here we get the shark point of view again and this time it's of alex kittner on his little raft on his little floaty guy and so from here it's a beach view of what is happening and there's like i'm gonna say the initial bite and then it's just these giant fins and blood and then this amazing shot. I don't know what the type of shot it is. It's called. I'm not sure what the if the shot has a name, but it's like a forward tracking zoom out shot. So basically, I think the camera is on the same plane as Brody. Mm-hmm. And as it's being pushed forward, the zoom of the camera is pulling out. So it gives this weird optical illusion. And I think the first time that sort of effect was used was in Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Something very similar, at least. But it's a classic shot. It's beautiful. It's one of the best shots. Yeah. And talking about those fins getting the Kittner boy, you don't really see what's happening, but you could see something's happening. Mm -hmm. It's such an eerie shot. I love that. And then there's so much blood in the next shot. And, you know, that was all sort of a happy accident. Mm -hmm. Originally, there was going to be a raft with a dummy on it of Alex Kittner and the shark would basically just take a giant bite out of it. There's some still shots of it, and it looks pretty scary, but the shark didn't work right, and it just kind of rolled over, which is what we're seeing in the shot. And they realized, well, this looks really good. You know, sharks would obviously roll over when they would kill something, when Mm -hmm. they would bite something. So it was very smart to keep that in. So that's another happy accident that happened because of the shark not working right. Yeah, it's so good. So yeah, the the shot with Brody, the music is just like so just you feel his his stomach sinking. You just feel all the dread, everything, his worst nightmares come true. And he just takes off down that beach and runs right up to the waterline. Doesn't even go one step in. Nope. (laughs) Does not get everyone else goes into the water to pull people out and he runs right up to the waterline. So you get the bloody raft shot and it's washing up on the water and you see his mom looking for him and everyone knows that this little boy's dead. So from here we end up at a 
I guess a town hall, town meeting. There's a reward posted that is set up by Alex Kittner's mom uh, for three grand for someone to kill that shark. We end up meeting a lot of the business locals, um, people that own businesses on this island, and they are there to talk about what the plans are for the island. Are the beaches going to be closed and what kind of financial impact this will make on the island when they walk into this room there's no one in this big meeting room like the the mayor leads them in the yeah. blackboard is sitting at the back of the room and the blackboard is completely clean walk in and the turtleneck lady whose name i don't know i love her so much she owns a motel i just love how vocal she is how matter of fact she is uh she ends up saying that i don't find that funny at all i don't think that's funny at all I don't find that funny at all. <laughs> Which love. is funny because like a few scenes later, Brody says the same thing. That's not funny. That's not funny at all. That's not funny. That's not funny at all. <laughs> <laughs> so Chief Brody proposes to have shark spotters, extra deputies, and closing the beach. The Only ma- for 24 hours. Yep. The mayor chimes in with the 24 hours and Brody's like, that's not. I never agree to that. that. Yeah. So I'm just quoting the whole movie. Here. Yeah, you are. <laughs> so now the rest of this podcast will be Robert just reenacting the movie. Let me uh, sharpen my fingernails. <laughs> here we're introduced to one of the greatest characters in, I think, cinema history of all time. I agree. Quint. I love him. I love him so much. He has done a little arts and crafts, a little doodling on this chalkboard. And it is an amazing shark eating a human. And he gets (laughs) the attention of the entire room by running his grubby, horrible nails over this chalkboard. And it's horrible. And I I, love... it's perfect. It's a perfect way for him to introduce himself. And your your favorite lady holds her eardrum. Yes, she does. <laughs> I would too. And I would give him the exact same look. This is one of the best entrances of a character. And his speech about getting his $10,000 fee mm-hmm. and, and uh, how he'll kill the shark is one of the best moments of the movie. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. You know, this wasn't originally going to be the way Quint was introduced to us. Oh, really? Spielberg thought originally the way we were going to meet Quint was there was going to be a movie theater that was playing Moby Dick, the Gregory Peck version. Uh huh. And Quint would be in the theater watching it and he would be laughing maniacally. Oh, this sounds so familiar. Uh huh. He'd be laughing maniacally, kind of like Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, the okay. movie theater. <laughs> And everyone would just spread out until he's by himself laughing hysterically at how inaccurate Moby Dick is and the effects. And the only reason that didn't happen Mm -hmm. was because Gregory Peck owned a piece of that movie and didn't give them the rights to use the movie. Not because he was being mean or didn't want them to use the movie, but he wasn't happy with his own performance in Moby Dick, and he didn't want anyone else to see that movie ever again. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad he did hold out because we ended up with the perfect entrance for him. We did. Oh, also while he is proposing this, he's chomping down on like this cracker. Yeah, that he eats like throughout the whole movie. (laughs) He does. He's like, but he takes the daintiest bites out of them like the smallest bites yeah but it looks so good even though you never fully see this cracker um whatever it is it looks good and i want some (laughs) so he wants ten thousand dollars to catch and kill oh so he after he really takes command of this room and walks out one thing i never thought about and very much noticed at this time around a gentleman follows him out 
with a dog and he's like this little man in a flannel sweater or yeah, his little coat. lackey yeah who then shows up later on i was like what's this guy just but it's you don't see them come in together so he just kind of like leaves with him but this man is so old and then <laughs> you see them later on there is a deleted scene of him deciding that he's gonna quit working with quint because he doesn't want to go on this trek to find the mm-hmm. shark but yeah it's a weird little guy yep and they got a little hound dog and they walk out so chief brody is reading all about sharks uh and there are these really just scientific illustrations that he's looking at and then he starts looking at just some real wild accounts of sharks and his wife comes up to him and she wants to see what he's looking at and she inadvertently sneaks up on him and they both end up scaring each other so he's in a real tense place because he is very much spooked by this whole shark situation Mm -hmm. he's uneasy by the way there's a dog in this scene their pet dog which was spielberg's real dog oh really he was in the first scene also yeah yeah he's a real cute i think there were two dogs actually really yeah i think they were both uh spielberg's dogs Mm. so they have two sons and michael and sean i think so michael was given a boat and he's on that boat in the water but he's not going anywhere like he is docked he doesn't want to let his little brother onto the boat and chief brody is just real upset about this he doesn't even want him in the boat he wants him out of the boat and during this moment he ends up having this conversation with his wife and his wife is like you're overreacting they'll be fine and he's letting her know his unease regarding this whole situation meanwhile she is thumbing through the books that he's looking at and there and they love this there's a picture of a shark attacking a boat and she immediately starts yelling at the kids to listen to their father and to get out of that boat and come inside (laughs) so i thought that was great because she was like oh wait (laughs) yeah that's a great comedic scene Mm -hmm. then he starts going through the book again and yeah the pictures are so graphic and they're real real shark attacks they're really one of the guy's leg that shred apart is really so this scene that you're talking about is intercut with this holiday roast scene where the two gentlemen on the dock one of them ends up complaining about how his wife is going to be so mad when she sees what he's done with her all this meat, roast. her holiday roast. You know how many roasts you could buy? $3,000? I love that conversation. So uh, they hook it, put it onto a chain and throw it out into the ocean tied to like a tire or something. And they're basically fishing for this shark. Yeah. The shark ends up taking the bait, but with it, he takes the, the dock with it. And th- so there's two guys on the dock. Charlie ends up falling into the dock. And we have another really great scene where, again, you don't see the shark. This time there was no point of view from the shark. Uh-huh. But the shark is this dock. Wherever this dock is going is where the shark is. Correct. Um, and so it's heading out to the ocean. And then you see it just turn around because Charlie is swimming in the ocean. Yeah. And that dock is heading straight towards Charlie. And the music is built up so loud at this moment and it's cut with come on charlie swim for your life yep take my word for it Oh, and then when he like ends up getting pulled up on the, to the onto the dock, but he can't quite get his footing, and so his feet are still in the water. Yeah, so good. At one point in the development of the movie, uh, he was going to lose his leg. He was going to get his leg eaten, but since uh, that might happen later in the movie, they mm-hmm. figured uh, that maybe a little bit too much. Yeah, I think this is 
This is really good because it's like a close call. It's an overall comedic scene that is interrupted by just horror. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it ends with, I believe, Charlie being like, can we go home now? Can we go home now? The next morning, there is a whole lot of boat frenzy happening on the island. And then you have that shot of Frank Silva. <laughs> Who was Frank Silva? I don't know. He must be an islander. But there's this long shot of this guy. He's the harbor master, it says. Uh-huh. And he walks out with a little sailor hat and a pipe. And he just grins looking back and forth <laughs> like that. <laughs> Do you, you hate him? I don't know. Such a weird face. <laughs> There are people trying to just get onto the boats and get out there to catch this shark to get this reward money and also to keep the beach safe and keep their island safe. But everyone's just like really kind of haphazardly getting into boats, underprepared, overweighting boats, arguing with each other, whatever. And in this grabbing dynamite, (laughs) grabbing dynamite. And in this chaos, we meet Matt Hooper, who's introduced in what I called like a meet cute situation with Brody. Yep. Well, the first person that he meets when he's looking for Chief Brody is the head sailman of the area mm-hmm. named Ben Gardner. Which I didn't realize that that's him. Ben Gardner, he's played by Craig Kingsbury, and he was another fisherman from Martha's Vineyard who was a very lively character, and he was really like a real-life Quint, and lots of Quint's dialogue and mannerisms were taken from the guy who played Ben Gardner. Getting to know him a little bit and hearing him talk, Spielberg took some of his lines and just everyday speech and gave them to Quint. That speech, when you first meet him at the chalkboard, some of those lines were actual Ben Gardner lines, or uh, Craig Kingsbury lines. Oh, wow. Well, he doesn't really say much no. <laughs> that we could see. And so he he directs Hooper over to go towards Brody. Brody's trying to just kind of get people okay. No dynamite. Don't overload that boat. And they end up meeting each other. So Hooper ends up doing his own medical investigation. He wants to see the remnants of the body. He's in from the oceanographic. Oceanographic. Yeah, it's a hard word to say. Yeah, it is. And Brody says it so well. Oceanographic. Ocean. Ocean. Oceanographic. That uh, o- <laughs> <not> oceanographic. <laughs> and, and he wants to go over the body. He wants to look at it himself. And he has a real intense reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Parodied wonderfully by John Belushi on Saturday Night Live. Oh, it's so good. It's just so good. <laughs> oh, my God. You can't tell me this woman was killed by falling out of a tree. (laughs) What is it? Land shark. But this is another great scene. What I like also is he has this reaction and he's, you know, taking notes. Uh, He's wearing a little uh, microphone and headset to record his findings. And he asks for a cup of water Mm -hmm. because it's just affecting him too much. And he he kind of swishes it around in his mouth. And I like how that's foreshadowing later when he goes into the cage and he says, I got no spit. Oh, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. I do really love his reaction. I think his acting is so spot on. Like he is, he comes in, he knows that he's here to talk about a shark 
And when he's investigating, he's also noting that it seems like the bite radius would be to, I think he called it like a squalus or something, Um, but that it seems like it might be much larger Mm -hmm. than what you would normally find. So already you know that this is just going to be, something is wrong with this shark. This shark is just already a monster. And And he's so disturbed by what is happening. He has such a like passion and he's just so angry and scared. It wasn't any coral reef and it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. And he's being very upfront mm-hmm. where Brody's like caught in the middle where he's up front and wanting to keep everyone okay, but he's not as well informed. And then you have on the other side of that, you have the mayor who does not give a crap about anyone and anything and just cares <laughs> about money. Yeah. So it's like it's so it's so interesting to see these three different dynamics next to each other, which all come to a head very soonishly. So a shark gets caught. And there's a whole hullabaloo on the dock. Uh And Hooper goes over and measures it. Brody is so excited and happy because he's like, yes, this is the shark. Mm. What Um, kind of shark is it? It's a tiger shark. Uh, (laughs) He does not sound like that. That's one of my favorite lines, too, is the guy that goes, oh, what? <laughs> but I always exaggerate it. Yeah, you do. A what? Quint does go by during this scene, and he is laughing at everyone on the talk because he knows that that's not the shark. Yeah. He is well aware. I kind of feel bad for that shark, though. It's like they're stringing him up and taking pictures. This poor oh, I, guy. I, it's, one of a very, it's a very upsetting scene yeah. for me. I just... And it was a real shark. Yeah. Um, that they brought in and with being in the sun it was starting to decay and smelled horribly and then apparently when they strung it up the internal organs kind of shifted and just settled to the back of his throat so the people that had to work close up with it really didn't have a good time oh no so hooper ends up saying that this isn't the shark like he's just like this this isn't the shark and here comes the mayor saying that it is the shark and hooper remarks that he would like to he needs to see the contents of the shark's stomach. And this is my other favorite line. And I am not going to stand here and see that thing cut open and see that little Kentner boy spill out all over the dock. The mayor has very good lines. So Alex Kittner's mother shows up and this woman really commands every moment that she is on screen. Mm-hmm. She ends up coming and, and just reads Brody and just tells him that... Well, she slaps him. She does. She slaps him real hard and i love that it cuts to hooper's reaction i think i'm shocked because she Um, just she really lets him have because she's like are you chief brody he says yes yeah boop and the actress that played her had a hard time hitting him and she had to be talked into actually hitting him and apparently all throughout her life uh people go up to her and ask her to slap them and she tells brody that he could have prevented what happened but he didn't and there's no way to rectify that and bring her son back no matter what he did her son is dead he made his decision and these are the consequences of his decision is that her son is no longer there And she just wanted him to know that the mayor comes over and it's another example of him really kind of washing his hands of any sort of responsibility and trying to console Brody. But it's just it's a real crappy way to console someone and say it's not your fault. And Brody's like, it is my fault. So you see that this is taking a huge emotional toll on 
Chief Brody. And so here we have a really, really, really beautiful scene with Chief Brody at home. And you can tell that a lot is weighing on his mind. And the music here is beautiful. And he's sitting with his son and his son, his youngest son, Sean, is mimicking everything that he's doing. They're having this little moment, a quiet moment at their kitchen table. This was an unscripted scene where the kid just happened to be copying everything Roy Scheider was doing. And Roy Scheider grabbed Steven Spielberg real quick. It's a grab the camera. Look at this. It's a really sweet, great scene. And then at the end, he asks his son for a kiss. And his son says, why? And he's like, because I need it. And I just actually kind of teared up a little bit. I love their relationship. And that little kid's so cute. Matt Hooper shows up with two bottles of wine. Because he didn't know what they'd be serving. (laughs) One of each. (laughs) And here we they end up having a conversation about pretty much what's happening. And you find out more about Brody hating the water and that he's actually afraid of the water. And uh, we also hear about Hooper's theory that this is a rogue shark. And Hooper really just wants to make sure that that is the shark that they caught wants to make sure what shark it is. If it's the shark that everyone thinks it is, then great. And if it's not, then they have a much bigger problem on their hands. Because the next morning, the mayor wants the shark disposed of. So this is their one chance to really take a look at it. So a very drunk Brody, who also has a bottle of wine with him, and Hooper go out to go check out this shark. And uh, the contents of the shark's stomach, very much not what they we're hoping to find. Yeah, and I love that as they're doing this half-assed autopsy, Hooper's pulling things out and he's just throwing it at Brody, basically. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty great. Hooper pretty much just courses Brody to get onto a boat with him. And it's the first time that we see, well, it's the second time, I guess, that we see Brody on an, on a boat. But this time, he's got his little life vest on, he's got a bottle of wine in the other hand, and they're going out into the ocean. And they happen upon Ben Gardner's boat. So Hooper wants to get into the water and go check it out. And here we have a very scary scene for me. It gets me every single time. Under the boat, there is a hole, which then I did kind of question this. I'm like, why is this boat not sinking? There could have been like an air pocket keeping it afloat, you know? So there's a giant tooth in this hole in the boat. And so he goes to remove the tooth. And as he is a decapitated head with a missing eye uh, pops out and it's <laughs> it scares the bejesus out of him he ends up dropping the tooth and swimming very rapidly up to the surface i always thought it was weird because it is such a shocking scene that gets you every time but there's such a delay on hooper's reaction where you, you, you get the jump scare you see the head comes out and then he stares at it. You get a close-up of it. And then he runs off screaming or swims yeah. off screaming. But I guess that's to give the audience time to look and react. But yeah, totally. it does seem to be uh, a little bit off. Uh, just but, a little bit. It's very effective, though. Yeah. The next morning, Brody and Hooper end up talking to the mayor. And they are talking in front of that beautiful giant billboard that says, Amity Island welcomes you that's been vandalized. And they are talking about what is happening and how important Fourth of July is and that there are people coming to the island right now. Brody's making calls to get back up and help to keep people safe, but the mayor absolutely refuses to close the beaches. For Christ's sake, tomorrow's the 4th of July and we will be open for business. And so uh, we end up seeing the throngs of people just descending on the island. Just so many people coming to the island. Yep. And there's a really wonderful news report 
that is put into this movie. And the news reporter at the end says that there's a cloud hanging over the island in the shape of a killer shark. (laughs) Um, And then I thought of that Mondo poster that came out where it has the clouds in the the shape of a killer shark. And do you know who that reporter is? Mm -mm. That's Peter Benchley. Who wrote the novel Jaws. Oh, he's so great. He makes a wonderful reporter. Well, he was offered that role, and, you know, of course he took it, but he, besides being an author, was a reporter and a journalist. So he he had some experience with that. That's excellent. So, tons of people on the beach. However, no one is swimming. And the mayor's walking through, and he ends up running into a gentleman and pressuring him to go into the (laughs) ocean with his wife and their grandkids. I would assume so. They're pretty old. Yeah. What does that guy do for the mayor, I wonder? I do, too. I feel so bad for that family. They look so scared when they go into that water. (laughs) They, the way, when they show his wife, and she just looks so uneasy as she's pushing these kids out on this floating dinner plate, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I would just, I don't know what I'd do. I'd just say, no, we can't. We're not going in there. What are you going to do to us, Mayor? But pretty soon after they go out, everyone follows suit. Yep. Or should Um, I say, follow swimsuit. (laughs) So, Mike, Brody's son... And his friends are trying to take their boat into the ocean. And he asks the kids to please go out into the pond. Kid doesn't want to. He says it's for old ladies and (laughs) kids. But but he's like, please just do it for old man. Just go out there. So Mike and his friends go out to the pond, which is presumably the safer place to be. So from here, you get the underwater shots and sounds cutting in and out of like all of these people on in the water, which I think is just so great because yeah. again, it's like you just hear the hustle and bustle, but you never know when this shark is going to show up. Yeah. Steven Spielberg filmed it at basically water level mm-hmm. because that is a view that we're all familiar with when we go swimming. That's ba- He basically put the camera where we would see things. Yes. But I, yeah, I do love it where if the water covers the camera, the sound goes out to an underwater sound. Yep. And as soon as it is free of the water, it's the normal sound again. It's really great. Yep. The mayor's being the mayor and just schmoozing and being a jerk to people. And a shark soon is spotted by one of the spotters on the beach. And people start to panic. Uh, you see this woman also who backs up and is freaked out and mows over. And it is just complete chaos. It is yeah. awful. There's a man who pushes the kids <laughs> off of the raft and then takes their raft yeah. to pull himself into shore. Well, the, fir- the first guy that has that weird look as he sees, I guess, the fin and then go- and then um, backs away, I always thought that was John Ritter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is a great intense scene and Brody's freaking out saying, no whistles, no whistles. Yeah, he's trying to get people to be calm, but also have a sense of urgency where it's just mass chaos and panic. There's a point where there's a woman clutching a baby in the ocean, just standing there screaming. And then there's a gentleman who's also trampled. It's just insanity. It turns out to be a prank. It's two little boys with a cardboard cutout who, when they come up for air, there is a, just a gaggle of people pointing shotguns at them. Which is funny. Again, I know they extend it so we get the point, but they, they emerge from the water, they take off their fin, take off their goggles, and they look up and all the guns are pointing at them. By this point, they know that it's not a shark. Yeah. <laughs> They've been up for, you know, five, ten seconds. But 
you got to get that point across. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I love how the little one immediately rats out the other one. It's like, he made me do it. So as everyone, there's, the, you know, the panic on the beach right now. There is a woman who has the most amazing outfit on ever in this entire movie. She spots a shark going into the pond and Brody starts running towards that pond because he remembers that Mike is in that pond. And I mean, in general, he'd run towards it anyway. And so here we get the attack in the pond. Yeah. And this has, (laughs) again, another one of my favorite lines, that guy showing off his Boston accent. Haul in the sheet. Make it fast. You guys okay over there? (laughs) (laughs) I love that guy. Yeah, he's really great. Haul in the sheet. Make it fast. Hey, you guys. You guys okay over there? The shark ends up tipping over all of the boats in this and ends up attacking this gentleman. And we get a really just horrific but wonderful shot of the shark going in. And it's an aerial view of what's happening. That's my favorite shot of the shark throughout the whole movie the first shot where you just see him underwater you can't really make out what it is mm-hmm. it's very scary and the shot where you see him more clear is terribly scary as well yeah i mean, i feel like there's a lot there's one little part where he looks like a little puppy dog but in that scene there no later on so he attacks this dude and we get a view of a severed leg falling to the bottom of the pond yeah. It's a very good severed leg. It is. Are you going to tell me that someone actually severed the leg for this? <laughs> no, it's not a real leg, but uh, there is a story, a little bit of a story about that or about this scene. Originally, it was going to be shot differently where the guy, he ends up getting attacked by the shark and he is being dragged by the shark mm-hmm. and he grabs onto Michael to move him out of the way, but he holds on to him for a while and he's kind of riding with him as he's being dragged and his head's just cocking backwards and blood's coming out of his mouth. And then he finally lets go of Michael as he goes under. Spielberg thought that's just too horrific to do. Yeah, it really is. And then with the leg, the original shot lingered on it for another second or so. They ended up cutting it because they really wanted to get, get this a pg rating because <laughs> oh there was no pg-13 back then uh-huh. they didn't want to get the r rating and the note that they gave was to just to cut a second's worth off of that leg really <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if maybe it turns and you see a little bit like of meat and stuff like that like some maybe. insiders of it who knows so severed leg falls and the shark swims right past michael the whole island at this point gets a glimpse of the shark because you see the fins and it starts swimming out to open water and michael's in shock he gets pulled onto the beach and brody is tending to him and this is his son he has a moment where he looks out into the ocean where the shark has gone and he has this look on his face where he knows what he has to do that he has to confront a the shark and b the ocean whatever is out there like now he has to face it head on. They can't keep skirting around the issue. And see Quint. And see Quint. So next Brody is in the hospital with his son. Brody's real amped up. And the mayor is there. And the mayor is definitely in shock. The mayor's trying to rationalize his decisions by mumbling to himself and saying that he was just doing what was good for the island. And Brody comes up to him and is like, I have the contract. You're going to hire Quint. And the mayor is a little reluctant. And he tells him that his son was there also. So they end up hiring Quint. 
for the amount of money that he requested. So here we get a really great more time with Quint. The rest of this movie is just the Quint show. He's laying down his terms and him laying down the terms starts as soon as the mayor starts signing the paperwork. Right. And you see him walking through his little shack, shack, shed. There has to be some sort of term for this. Which, Um, by the way, Quint's shack, home, shed, (laughs) that was the only building that was made for the movie. Everything else were pre-existing. Oh, really? Um, He's boiling all these shark jaws. (laughs) He makes his own moonshine. So Hooper does tell Quint that he wants to join them, and Quint just does not like him. He has a really great, like, little speech telling him he's got, like, city hands and trying to get him to tie the proper knot and just really breaking down Hooper. He's just put, he wants nothing to do with him. Well, Hooper, uh, he ends up getting tired of him too. He gets tired of this working class hero stuff. Brody and Hooper end up joining Quint on his boat. Yeah. And this whole scene while they're setting up, Spielberg told Robert Shaw, who plays Quint, to say some raunchy things, get under the skin of Ellen Brody. Yes. And at one point he says a little rhyme. Do you remember? Mm, no. He says, Here lies the body of Mary Lee. Died at the age of 103. For 15 years she kept her virginity. Not a bad record for this vicinity. Oh, yes. I do remember so that. So Spielberg loved that. He said, you're going to have to tell me where you got that from so we could get the rights to this. You know, we might not be able to use it if mm-hmm. it's too expensive. And he told Steven Spielberg that he's doesn't think he's going to have a problem getting the rights because he read it off of a tombstone at a cemetery in Ireland. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah. Robert Shaw was wonderful. <laughs> Robert Shaw really was wonderful. Um, I mean, the man is definitely not flawless, but um, <laughs> he's a character for sure. Is this the first time we see hear him sing his song? Yeah. Okay. Farewell yes. and adieu. And it's as they're leaving the harbor and we get this shot through the shed, through the window of these boiled shark jaws of the boat leaving the harbor. And then it goes red. So, you know, this is a lot of foreshadowing. Yep. Um, but they go to catch this shark. When you say go red, that's because it cuts to a shot of the chum in the water. It doesn't right? cut. I mean, the red bleeds through. Yeah. So yeah. The, well, to dissolve. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, th- it goes red, and then he's chumming. And while Brody is throwing the chum out, we end up getting a scene with the compressed air, where he accidentally, like, knocks it over. Hooper flips out because he, like, pulls the wrong line and it falls over, and he's like, this is compressed air. It could explode at any moment. Damn it, Martin! Um, and um, Quint does open this beer, chugs it, and then just crushes the bottle or the can. While glaring at Hooper. <laughs> and Hooper is drinking water out of a cup. Paper cup. And then, cup. <laughs> and then like crushes the cup right back at him. <laughs> um, I really love their chemistry. I believe they didn't like each other. Robert Shaw gave Richard Dreyfuss a hard time, a really hard time on the set, much like how Quint gives Mm -hmm. Hooper a hard time on the set. But Richard Dreyfuss really looked up to him and admired him and really did love him. So we got a shot of the fishing line. So Quint has set up this thing where he's going to go fishing for this shark and he's just settled in and trying to get the shark. Hooper is driving. Brody is trying to learn how to tie a knot. It's called eel. And uh, the fishing line gets pulled and very sneakily, Quint straps the fishing line to his body for leverage. 
And this is one of the most suspenseful scenes of the movie because, you know, you, you kind of feel like you're let in us on a secret. Hooper and Brody have no idea what's about to happen, but Quint does. And he secretly, without their knowing, it prepares for what's to come. Yep. So from here, the fishing line takes off and uh, he's trying to follow the shark. He yells commands at Hooper. And then the fishing line doesn't necessarily go dead, but it stops. And he says that the shark is under the boat, I believe. Yeah. And he says that he he knows that he has the shark. Hooper says that he doubts it. He thinks it's a marlin. He thinks it's a swordfish. He just does not think it's the shark. Stingray, I think. So the line breaks and Quint ends up climbing into the crow's nest to get a really good bird's eye view of the situation. Quint is up there and Brody is chumming and he is just so tired of chumming. He's so upset. And it's this shot. It's kind of like an over the shoulder shot of him throwing chum into the water. And he turns his head towards the camera to talk some trash to the guys because he's just over it. And here we get our first full on down the barrel shot of the shark who comes up out of the water and scares the crap out of Brody, who then backs away from it and goes into the boat where now Quint is inside. And you get another iconic line. You're going to need a bigger boat. The most famous line from the movie ad-libbed by Roy Scheider wasn't in the script. Really? Yep. That's a great, great line. (laughs) What I find funny, though, is that Roy Scheider knew it was going to be a classic line, and he says it two other times, like right after that. I just feel like, oh, I came up with this great line. I better use it as much as I can, because later when they're all in the panic to try and catch the shark, he's like, we're going to get a bigger boat, right? And then later, as the scene's fading out, he's like, maybe we can go back to land and get a bigger boat. Yeah. But I mean, I think that speaks to him because he can see that Quint is not listening to them. Yeah. Quint is going out further into the ocean instead of going back to get this bigger boat that they definitely need. So the shark is circling the boat. It chases the boat. And this is right around the time when you get that classic line where Hooper says, it's a 20 footer. 25. Three tons on them. So they they plan to tag the shark with a keg. And the whole idea being that the shark can't stay submerged with this keg attached to it. And it'll come back up to the surface and they'll be able to track where it is. And it'll get tired eventually and they'll be able to catch it and drag it back to shore. However, Hooper wants to put a tracker, like an actual tracker on this shark. And so this is taking like a while for him to get this equipment onto the keg so that Quint can shoot it. So Quint has a very small window to shoot the shark and he wants to shoot it like in the head area, which would be their best bet. But because Hooper is taking, even though Hooper keeps telling him not to wait for him, he ends up delaying it a little bit. And finally, when they do shoot him, Quint is not satisfied with the shot that he got on the shark and very much just stares at Hooper like this is your fault. And I feel like he almost tells him, because of you, everything that happens from now on is your fault. (laughs) So Brody the whole time wants to go back home and Quint is very much about waiting it out. He says the shark's gonna come back up. This is our moment. Um, From here we get another really great scene of them in the boat. It is the evening time. Yeah. And Hooper and Quint are uh, drunkenly comparing scars. 
Yeah, and you can see here Quint starts to respect them. Yes. And they start to start to like each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're just having a real like bonding moment. They're all on this boat together. I'll drink to your scar. You drink to my scar. <laughs> and we hear about the horrific story of Quint being on the USS Indianapolis, um, which is very much a true story. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. This is Steven Spielberg's favorite scene in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's one of the best scenes of the movie. It is. It just has such classic lines, like the doll's eyes lines, and mm. the way he tells the story makes it so vivid and real, where he finds his friend and he just bobs like a top and upends himself. I and, know, and he's like, he thought that he was sleeping, but he's not. And yeah. Yeah, and he talks about how, like, 1,100 men went into the water like 300 or something came out yeah so good such a great story so 1100 men went in the water 316 men come out the sharks took the rest june the 29th 1945 so from here they end up hearing the whales singing to each other and they end up singing to each other as well show me the way to go we ominously see the keg appear um, with the little tracking beacon and it starts to approach the shark then starts to ram the boat yeah and then the lights go out and um i believe it's brody that comments that he ate the light or i thought that it, was hooper it might have been yeah it's hooper he ate the light <laughs> terrific quint starts shooting at him and then when the scene ends, there's two shots of a shooting star that yes. goes by, which is great. There's been rumors over the years that at least the first one was a real shooting star caught on film. It's not true, though. No, it moves oddly. The second one moves oddly for sure, yes. The first mm-hmm. one moves a little bit better. So the next morning, the shark shows up and they're trying to tether the keg and the rope to... Oh, boys, he's back for his noon feeding. <laughs> ...to the boat. And at the same time, Quint is taking a call over the radio. Yeah, Brody's wife wants to check in on them. And the voice of the person that calls in was Steven Spielberg. Oh. Amity Point Light Station to Oregon. This is Amity Point Light Station to Oregon. Quint very sarcastically tells him that everything's okay, that they're fishing, and not to worry. Brody goes back in there to go call because he wants to talk to his wife mm-hmm. and quint comes in and just beats the crap out of that radio and kills it and yeah. they just end up having this fight together you're certifiable at this point there's music swelling and we have like some hopeful music as they're able to get more kegs on the shark um and brody also just pulls out his gun and starts shooting the shark yeah there's a group of uh some funny outtakes of Roy Scheider filming this scene where the gun never works. He's just getting angrier and angrier. <laughs> action. Gun jam. Gun doesn't work. And action. Gun doesn't work. Ah, fuck. Please. The shark starts dragging the boat and it is bonkers. Just how powerful it is yeah. at making these waves and... Soaking them good. They're just being taken for a ride. And because of the damage that he did previously, the engine is now starting to really get flooded and the boat is taking on a lot of heavy, heavy damage. There's a point where the shark starts eating the line towards the boat. 
Yeah. And he comes out of the water and I could have swore I heard a tiny roar yeah, come he, out of the shark. He has a sound. Okay. Which is very scary. Yeah. And yeah. And then he goes back down under. And at this point he has three barrels attached to him. And Quint is just flabbergasted and is like, he shouldn't be able to do this with three barrels. Can't go down with three. He should be coming right back up. And finally he decides that they need to head back towards land and drag him into the shallows and, and lure him, him in there. You're going to drown him. Quint just like guns it. The engine is taking all it can take and it breaks down. But as he's doing it, he starts singing his song again. And I feel like Quint says these things, but also knows that they've been drug out too far out of the harbor. Okay. And I kind of feel like this is one of the first steps where Quint knows he's going to die. Think so? Yes. Because he sings this song, but the way that he sings it is slightly different than before. And I think it's because he knows that he's not coming back. Like, I think at this point, he's kind of in this weird kookier state, but he's also like incredibly so like he's I feel like he's sobered up, but he's still like super crazy. But I mean, that's just how I'm I took it because there aren't enough life vests. So he gives the life vest to everyone else and he comes out wearing his little jacket and his little hat and he just (laughs) looks like he's just ready to confront what's happening. And I think he knows that he's going to die. So they develop this plan. Here comes like Hooper with his Hail Mary. And he's just like, if I inject him with this stuff, I can probably kill him, like poison the shark. So earlier on, he had brought this shark cage, and which Quint had totally made fun of him with the shark cage. What I liked also is when they're preparing this shark cage, at one point, Brody goes inside to get Hooper's harpoon. And the shot... Yes. lasts and lingers on an air tank, which yeah. will come into play later. So they lower the shark cage in there and Hooper goes into the shark cage. And in here we get a lot of footage of a real shark yeah. interspliced with the, they the fi- mechanical shark. Yeah, they filmed a lot of uh, real shark footage here along with inside of a tank on the MGM lot. Okay. So Hooper gets attacked by the shark and as much as he tries to settle his nerves and be able to be prepared for the shark, it takes him by surprise and he ends up dropping the harpoon needle thing that he has. He's always dropping stuff. He is. And the shark is attacking him. So Hooper escapes and goes and hides um, behind some rocks, like in some coral. And Quint and Brody bring the shark cage back up. It's completely broken. It's in shambles. They assume that he got eaten and is dead. Yeah. And as they're doing this, as they're kind of gathering themselves, um, the shark jumps onto the boat. <laughs> um, Maybe much, the most classic shot. Yes, he attacks the, the attacks the boat. He starts to kind of tip the boat, and so everything is sliding towards him. And this is unfortunately our farewell to our beautiful Quint. Yeah, he's holding on for dear life, and an air tank crushes his fingers. And yep. Brody does his best to hold on to him, but he slips away and into the jaws of jaws. Yep. And earlier on, he had helped them with getting the shark untied from the boat with a machete and that machete he ended up leaving on the side of the boat and so he grabs this machete to try to hack at the shark and give it all he can but we do end up seeing see him meet his demise with the shark and he gets dragged into the ocean yeah and it's so scary and i can only imagine that making jaws working with that 
animatronic must have been really scary. Like, he just looks so scary, and I would be freaked out to be in the mouth of that thing. <laughs> I would, too. But then you see, like, that one shot of Robert Shaw laying right next to the shark. Yeah, but still. <laughs> <laughs> and he has, like, his legs crossed and his arms behind his head. And he's like, do 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 just me and my friend. And so Brody's moving through the cabin of the boat. And just in the nick of time, he misses the shark coming through one of the windows. So here comes this uh, the beautiful air tank thing where he starts hitting the shark with it. But I think he realizes that he could presumably get this into the shark's mouth and the shark is chomping a bunch. Yeah. So why wouldn't, if the shark has all this pressure from his mouth, chomp, 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 he should be able to chomp through this. And if you remember earlier in the movie, when he's looking in the book of shark photos, there's a picture of a shark with an air tank in his mouth. I did not remember that. Yeah. (laughs) So he shoves it into the shark's mouth and the shark retreats and this boat is going down. So he starts scrambling around, does not have a life preserver on or anything, and um, ends up climbing to the top of this boat that is sinking yeah, he climbs to the to the mast as it's sinking he grabs a long stick with a point at the end of it and the shotgun yep the shark is trying to bite at him and he's poking at it <laughs> he's just gonna gonna murder our hero brody and then the shark pretty much ends up like i'm gonna say like taking like a running <laughs> a running start towards him yep and brody still has ammunition in his gun and starts shooting at the shark and trying to aim to get, you know, he says the classic line, smile, you son of a, and then as he's saying, bitch, he ends up shooting the tank and exploding the crap out of <laughs> the shark. Why are you son of a the Pieces go flying everywhere. Pieces do go flying everywhere. And there's also that very serene shot of the shark. That is a beautiful shot. And the music music. is really good. And there's a dinosaur sound effect in there, too. What? I'll tell you more when we get to the making of it. Okay. So, yeah. So, he ends up killing the shark. And he's all alone on this boat. And here comes Matt Hooper. (laughs) He's come out and as soon as they see each other, they both just start laughing because (laughs) they survive this horrific ordeal. And Matt asks about. um, Well, it's one of my another one of my favorite lines. He says, Quint. No. Yep. (laughs) And then they both go very somber. Then they look over and there's some kegs still around. And he's like, can we swim back on those? And our departing shot of our two heroes is them paddling back to land on these kegs. And what do they say? What's the final line? I used to hate the water. (laughs) I can't imagine why. Yeah. And then your old credits. It's the beach. The very, very recognizable shoreline of Amity Island. Little lighthouse. And you see them very tinily coming <laughs> onto shore as the credits are rolling um, yeah. on this fantastic film. And then you think back to yourself, boy, what did I just see? Did I see one of the greatest pictures of all time or did I? And yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's a really great film, but that's Jaws. <laughs> did you love it you recommend it oh my god i super recommend it would you say it's in your top 10 movies of all time i would i 
love Jaws. You know, I didn't see it much as a kid, did you? I watched it a lot as a kid. Like, I, I think I really got into it probably when I was around 13 or so, 14. Mm-hmm. So that was our little recap of Jaws. We both love it very much. And why don't we talk a little bit about how Jaws was made? You know what, Robert? Why don't we talk a little bit about how Jaws was made? Okay. <laughs> and here we go. Wrong movie. So as you know, Jaws originated as a book written by Peter Benchley. Mm-hmm. Peter Benchley was inspired somewhat by a real fisherman catching this giant shark in 1964. And he thought this would be a great story if this giant shark, you know, attacked the town and fishermen are going after it. Jaws was not the original title. He had a hard time coming up with a title. He would come up with all these really pretentious sounding titles like... The Stillness in the Water, or Leviathan Rising. (laughs) So he and his publisher decided that, you know, they used the word Jaws quite a few times throughout Mm -hmm. the movie. Why not just call it Jaws? They didn't know what that meant, but, you know, just the Jaws of the Shark, I guess. But he thought, "Mm, it's a neat looking word. It might work. So they did it. And a classic was born. I'm so glad. It's just, it gets right to the point. Have you read the book? No, I have not. Well, do you mind if I give you some spoilers? Or Not at all. I saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book is pretty different from the movie. Oh? There were lots of side stories and subplots in the book that they decided to cut out for the movie to make it more of a streamline. For instance, Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife. <gasps> no. Yeah, it's it's kind of shocking because he never it, it doesn't <laughs> just the way they portray him in the movie seems like something that would never happen. Ellen would never cheat on Brody. Is Brody like a real a hole in the in the book? I don't remember if he is or I feel like he's not. Uh, I think Hooper's the a hole, but I'm not positive. Ellen would never cheat on him. <laughs> the Ellen that I know and love would never cheat on him. Yeah. So another thing that was in the book that didn't make the movie is a whole kind of backstory on why. The mayor is so adamant about keeping the beaches open and keeping the town successful. And that's because the town is run by the mafia. <laughs> okay, I like that they cut that out, though. Because uh, the I bo- just... Yeah, the mob invested in real estate in Amity. And, uh... <laughs> it's a very unnecessary subplot. Yeah. Um, and I just like the fact that the mayor would just be like a complete a-hole and um, not heed any warning. Which was pointed out in the recent Ghostbusters movie. That's right. Please don't be like the mayor in Jaws. <laughs> and never compare me to the Jaws mayor. Never! The way some of the characters die mm-hmm. in the book is different than how they die in the film. For instance, Quint. As you know, in the movie, he dies by getting eaten by the shark. In the book, he dies by getting his foot caught on a harpoon and he gets dragged under the water and drowns. They changed it mostly so it kind of parallels his Indianapolis story, that he's going to die the way that he feared most, Uh which I think was a a good way to do it, and more cinematic. Yeah, it's much more cinematic. And you can see the fear in his eyes as he's just, oh, gosh. So also in the book, Hooper dies. Mm -hmm. And originally, when they were making the movie, he was going to die in the movie. Mm -hmm. The only reason... 
he escaped from that cage and lived was because when they were shooting the footage of the real shark, it got caught above the cage and had that great scene of it thrashing around. And they didn't have anyone in the cage at that time. So they had to get him out of that cage to use the shot. So they came up with the idea that he escapes and hides. And that's what made him survive. I thought it was going to be like, they thought that Richard Dreyfuss was just so great. So producers Dick Zanuck and David Brown, they both found Jaws on their own, uh, the book, and read it. And they loved it. And they wanted to buy the rights. So they did. They had no idea how they would turn it into a movie because it seemed almost impossible. Mm -hmm. But they decided to give it a go. Nice. Steven Spielberg first saw it apparently sitting on someone's desk at a studio. And he took it and and read it and he saw a lot of similarities between this and duel which is one of spielberg's first movies mm-hmm. a television movie about a truck chasing a man in a car played by uh, dennis weaver and spielberg he felt like this was sort of a sequel to duel like in the same vein the same family and it kind of is mm-hmm. it's uh one's on the land one's in the water when they decided to make the movie, Peter Benchley, who wrote the book, wrote the first script also. Mm-hmm. At that point, Spielberg was interested and he wrote a draft. Spielberg wrote a whole script himself. And in Spielberg's script, that's where you had that opening with Quint in the theater and some other things. A few things did make the final cut. One thing being the doc scene with Charlie and the other guy. Okay. And the reason Spielberg wanted that in the movie so bad is he wanted the shot of the pier stopping, turning around and coming back it's such a great to get, shot to get it's him such a great idea after spielberg wrote his version of the script a man named howard sackler picked it up and, and wrote some more and his script he himself felt like he didn't get adequate time to work on it so he didn't want credit for writing the script hmm. because he didn't get enough time to work on it but his script was the one that really made spielberg Spielberg really excited and got him to sign on mm-hmm. I guess before when he wrote the script it was him basically he was just writing out his ideas and the way he wrote out his ideas was by writing a script so now Spielberg signed on and the final guy they got to write the script was Carl Gottlieb now the reason they got him was they had to shoot early to avoid some sort of actor's strike or something okay so they were told they need to start shooting at this day, but the script wasn't complete. And they had this guy named Carl Gottlieb, who was going to be playing the part of the mayor's publicist, uh, whatever you call him. And he was a writer, too. So as they were making the movie, they were writing the script as well. So they basically start shooting the movie without a script and without the cast fully casted. Oh, mm-hmm. So they're going to be making the movie. So now you got to get your cast together. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the uh, star of the movie is the Brody character. And the first person that came to mind was uh, a man who had just made a big picture for Universal in 1974 called Earthquake. And that's Charlton Heston, who I love. Charlie Hero. Charlie Hero. (laughs) (laughs) But Spielberg he decided that he he didn't want to use him because he didn't want to use someone with that big of a name. And Charlton Heston is known so much to always play the hero that he figured people would think the shark would have no chance against Charlton Heston. Yeah. It's like Jaws versus Moses. You know who's going to win. Yeah, I'm glad that that did not We're work We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would have thought that it would have been like... <laughs> 
kind of like you're gonna <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of like uh, silent green is made of people but instead it's you're gonna be in uh, need a bigger boat so apparently charlton heston was not happy about being turned down and he vowed to never work with that director again <laughs> or, or ever or ever i'm like they never work together um that's okay i don't know if he really said that steven spielberg did, did not need charlie hero hey don't put down charlie hero i'm just saying in terms of casting quint the first choice was actor Lee Marvin, but Marvin himself said, well, he'd rather go fishing than be in this picture about <laughs> catching a shark. And there's also a rumor that Robert Duvall talked Steven Spielberg into directing the movie. And because of that, Steven Spielberg offered him the part of Brody, but Duvall wanted the Quint part. But Spielberg felt he was too young at the time to play Quint. Oh, yeah, he would have been just a, a shade too young. Yeah. I mean, he's not Boo Radley young, but he's pretty young. <laughs> yeah. And then for Hooper, the first choice of Spielberg's was John Voight. Man, I'm glad that didn't. <laughs> so none of these first choice actors came to be. Instead, we got Roy Scheider mm-hmm. to play Brody, who met Steven Spielberg at, at a party and overheard him talking about this shark that jumps out of the water, lands on a boat and cracks it in half. And that <laughs> really got Scheider <laughs> interested. Uh, for Hooper, we got Richard Dreyfus, who was a recommendation from Spielberg's friend, George Lucas, who had worked with him on uh, American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. Originally, Richard Dreyfus passed on the role of Hooper. Mm-hmm. He thought it would be a terrible time making it, which he wasn't wrong about that. <laughs> he thought he would love to watch this movie, but not be in it. In the movie that Richard Dreyfus did previous to Jaws, he saw it in the theater and he wasn't happy with his performance and he was worried he'd never work again. So he called Spielberg up and said, if that job's still available, I'll take it. (laughs) So he became Hooper. And then I think the producers suggested looking at Robert Shaw for Quint. And that is how the cast came to be. Speaking about different actors that were suggested to play the parts, Peter Benchley, who wrote the script, his suggestion of who should play these three characters was Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and Steve McQueen. But, you know, Spielberg didn't want to use huge actors. A lot of times he doesn't like using huge names like Jurassic Park doesn't have anyone huge or at the time they weren't huge yeah so originally the shoot was supposed to be around 55 days and it ended up being 159 days oh my gosh and people were just so upset thinking the movie would never end they're having Mm -hmm. such a terrible time because for several reasons one Steven Spielberg demanded that the movie be shot on the ocean and a movie had never been shot on an ocean at this point Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to shoot on an ocean because of the tide pulling everything out, things changing, mm-hmm. wind, sun. It was just a horrible time, and you had to wait so much. Most of the time was just waiting. Some days they would wait all day and not get anything done. Another problem was the script wasn't finished, but because of all the waiting, they had time to finish it. And the third problem is the shark would never work correctly. Mm-hmm. The film and its production was nicknamed Flaws because there were so many problems. So Spielberg, he, he admitted his mistake eventually of wanting to shoot it on the ocean of being a naive young director. And he eventually said, you know, if he shot it in a studio tank or a controlled lake, it would have looked exactly the same. You think so? You could have painted out, you know, things to give it more of a horizon. But yeah, yeah. it could have. Eh, depends how they shoot it i don't know i think that maybe these quote-unquote horrible conditions for everyone really added to probably the acting if it had been in a controlled setting i think a lot of things would have gone too 
perfectly and then we wouldn't have this amazing film well that's true all of these setbacks and problems made the movie the incredible movie it is yeah so they decided to shoot at martha's vineyard which is a new england town the reason that they chose martha's vineyard was not because of the quaint little town itself but because it was the only area that had sort of a sea shelf meaning they could take their equipment and boats out 12 miles and the deepest the ocean would get is 30 feet Mm. they had lots of town people from martha's vineyard playing characters Mm -hmm. some bigger parts than others it it sort of became a little uh production company of, of, of characters but i think they were getting tired after 159 days of them being in their town and wanted them to leave so now that you have your cast and you're starting to shoot you have everything ready mm-hmm. you need the shark yes so the person that built the shark or the inner workings of it at least he also did the giant squid for Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and they got the shark working at universal studios mm-hmm. and it worked fine they brought it to the set or to martha's vineyard to do the shooting they put it in the ocean and right away it sunk to the bottom they uh, brought it back up and it had lots of problems and basically it would never work because it was never tested in salt water just in fresh and the salt really messed with the the controls and he would just go crazy it wouldn't do what they needed and all over the island richard dreyfus would hear the shark is not working the shark is not working repeat the shark is not working (laughs) (laughs) every time we go on the studio tour at universal studios we hear it also yeah and finally the shark was working the shark is working repeat the shark is working it worked for such a little amount of time that what we see in the movie is basically all the footage that they got good yeah. I mean, like, it sucks that they spent that much money on it, but I it really forced them to be more creative with how they were going to show this. And, like, the, the reveal at the end is just so impressive and scary. And, I mean, it's just, it's a big old shark, but it starts doing, it's just, you're imagining the worst thing possible. Yeah, it wouldn't have been half the movie it was with the shark working. Agreed. Like the first scene of the girl being killed, the shark would have shown up and killed her. It wouldn't have been a reveal. Right off the bat, we would have had that. Yeah. So there were three sharks made for the film. Mm -hmm. There was one that only had the right side of him complete, one that only had the left side, and then a complete shark. So they got the shark working enough where they had a successful movie. And at, at this point, I'm just going to give you some uh, some little facts uh, of things that have happened uh, throughout the production. One, I thought it was interesting that, do you remember what the name of their ship is? The Orca? <laughs> the Orca. The Orca is the only known predator to the Great White. Oh. So at one point, the Orca, uh, it did start to sink for real. Oh, really? And Spielberg was on a loudspeaker saying, save the actors, save the actors. And there's like this old man who's a sound guy who's holding his equipment above his head saying, F the actors, save us. (laughs) And the camera got submerged and they thought all the footage was ruined, but uh, it ended up being okay. And uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. They fixed the ship up and the Orca was on its way. Carl Gottlieb, the writer, he cites the thing from another world and it came from outer space as influences for the movie. 
which you can kind of see like the thing from another world mm-hmm. uh, kind of waits for the reveal of the monster till the end. And, okay. Um, so you kind of see what he's talking about there. That was his inspiration. We talked a little bit earlier about how if they had the shark working, the first scene would have had the shark in it. Mm-hmm. Well, in Spielberg's original script, he had a different idea of how the first scene would be. And it wasn't Chrissy swimming in the ocean he thought of an idea where it would be a harbor master at night in his little shack and he's watching television Mm -hmm. and as he's watching you could see him and behind him is a is a window and there's a bunch of ships docked and you could see in sequential order each ship start rocking back and forth like something is coming towards him causing the ships to start to move uh-huh. And then uh, he's drinking his coffee and he runs out and he's going to clean his coffee pot and he goes and dumps it in the water in the ocean off the dock. And at that point, the shark appears and swallows him whole. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it seems kind of neat. Uh-huh. So making this movie was really exhausting for everyone involved, especially the actors. I uh, do tend to drink when totally bored. Um, Roy does exercises, Roy Scheider and sunbathes. Scheider does that, and Dreyfus talks. Just Dreyfus just talks interminably. When they were on the ship, everyone at one point got seasick. <laughs> and at one point, Robert Shaw got really sick, where he like couldn't even move really. And they said, "There's no way he's gonna he's gonna do his scene. He can't. He could, can't even talk really." Well, they're doing the scene. It's when Hooper's steering the boat. Mm-hmm. and Brody and Quint are at the fishing line and they call action and then at the top of his lungs Robert Shaw just yells Hooper you idiot stop on it you watching it as soon as they called cut he collapsed oh my gosh <laughs> but he got the line out yeah so Robert Shaw you know he had a drinking problem mm-hmm. and he was great when he was sober he was pleasant to be around and you know a great actor and all that at one point during production, he said he wished he could stop drinking while he was drinking. <laughs> so Richard Dreyfus took his glass and threw it into the ocean. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and everyone like got really scared. Uh-huh. <laughs> when he first filmed the USS Indianapolis scene, he did it drunk since his character is supposed to be drunk. And it didn't come out very good. It wasn't very usable. And he called Spielberg late at night and asked him if he could redo the scene. And he did it again the next day in one take and got that great scene. The Indianapolis scene was penned by that third writer, the one that didn't take credit, Howard Sackler. Mm -hmm. But he only mentioned that, you know, basically Quint tells the story of being on the Indianapolis. He didn't write the words that he was going to say. And then someone took a crack at writing it. I don't remember exactly who it was, whether it was Carl Gottlieb or Peter Benchley, but Eventually, Robert Shaw said he, he can't say it the way that it's written. So Robert Shaw himself wrote the whole speech oh, wow. and uh, made it the way it is. And oh, it, he did such a fantastic job. Yeah. Well, Robert Shaw, you know, he was a playwright. Oh, really? I didn't know. I did not know. Yeah. During that scene, the Indianapolis scene, the shot of Quint pulling his tooth out from mm-hmm. a fight, you know, that was an idea of Robert Shaw. He really had a <laughs> fake, fake tooth. tooth that he pulled out. <laughs> It was also Roy Scheider's idea to look at his real appendix scar. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that little detail where he they're comparing scars and all he has is his appendix scar. Yeah. And he just looks down at it so woefully. Yeah. And Richard Dreyfus was really wearing a sweater under his shirt. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that joke to me. Yeah, he has a hairy chest. (laughs) 
Oh, of course, we didn't mention the fact that everyone knows. What's the name of the shark? Bruce. Bruce. Bruce was the name that Spielberg gave it after his lawyer. Mm-hmm. Roy Scheider never referred to it as Bruce. He thought it was disrespectful <laughs> to the shark. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, Spielberg also called it the great white turd. Uh-huh. Since he was always angry that it wasn't working. <laughs> you know, Peter Benchley, who wrote the, uh, the book, he was around for a lot of the filming. He was eventually thrown off the set because he did not agree with the climax of the movie. How so? Well, the way the story ends in the original story, in the book, the shark gets harpooned. It has a couple of barrels on it and eventually just sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Okay. So it wasn't very okay. climactic. Yeah, for sure. And Spielberg wanted an ending that would have people standing and cheering. And Peter Benchley thought shooting an air tank and by chance hitting it, making a blow up was just so unbelievable. It would never happen. And Spielberg said, if I have, if I have the audience for two hours, they're going to buy... Yeah. By this point. And, you know, years later, after watching it, after reflecting on it, Peter Betchley does agree this is the right ending for the movie. Good. Even if it isn't plausible, which apparently Mythbusters proved it's not possible. That's totally (laughs) fine. It's a movie. Yeah. And I want the satisfaction of watching that killing machine be blown to smithereens. So as we talked about, there is some real shark footage in the movie. Mm -hmm. As you know, Hooper goes down in the cage and confronts the shark. So the sharks that were filmed were about 15 feet long, where Jaws is supposed to be 25 feet long. Mm -hmm. So they made a mini cage (laughs) and put a little person in there Uh and had the real sharks going by to make it look more real. Now, this person that wanted the job of being the the little person, (laughs) the stunt double, for Hooper, he had a meeting with Steven Spielberg at Universal Studios, and he came to the meeting. He ran in with a gash on his head or something. He got in a car accident at the at Universal Studios, but he wanted the job so bad he left the scene and ran to have the meeting. And Spielberg said, "Well, what do you, you got to go back?" So he sent him to the to the car, and he's like, "Well, he really wants this job. We better give it to him." So they gave him the job. He did. As many takes as he could, but he was scared to death. They had a hard time getting him in that cage. They filmed it in Australia. They sent him to Australia. That footage of the real sharks was filmed by Ron Taylor and Valerie Taylor. I think they were documentarians and shark experts and things like that. When the little person wasn't in the cage, they also had a little dummy, like a little mannequin they'd put in there. Mm -hmm. And as I told you, when a real shark got caught in the cage and was thrashing about, neither the dummy or the little person were in the cage. Okay. Which is why Hooper now is able to live. Gotcha. Now, they also had to intercut that with footage shot in a tank at MGM Studios, Mm -hmm. uh, where you see shots of the animatronic shark with a Hooper stunt double as well. Uh Richard Dreyfuss didn't come back for that. In fact, the close-up of his eyes when he's being attacked, that's not even Richard Dreyfuss. Oh, wow. But we can't tell. I don't remember that person's name. But the double that was in the cage fighting off the shark, not in the close-up shots, but the one that was fighting off the shark, was Dick Warlock. And Dick Warlock went on to play Michael Myers in Halloween 2. Look at that. It's all... It's all connected. <laughs> yeah. It's all connected. I knew it was him. When I saw him walk through that door <laughs> in Halloween 2, I was like, I've seen this man in a shark cage in Jaws. Yeah. Knew it. So the last scene of the movie to be shot was the 
explosion of the shark. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg wasn't there. Why? He was on a plane flying back to L.A. with Richard Dreyfus, And Richard said, uh, how did that last shot go? And he's like, I don't know. They're filming it right now. And he started laughing because the reason he left for that last shot was everyone was so mad at him for making this movie last so long. He heard some awful pranks they were going to pull on him, like throw him in the water, do something. <laughs> so he ran away before they could do anything. And it became a tradition of his where he never shoots his last shot mm-hmm. on whatever movie he makes. So the movie was edited by Verna Fields, and she was a great editor. She did uh, American Graffiti also, oh. and she does a great job. She won the Oscar for Best Editing for awesome. this movie. When they did an early screening of the cut, the shot where the shark pops up during the chumming scene, mm-hmm. everyone freaked out. Popcorn went flying, and they, <laughs> they were going crazy, screaming, and Spielberg loved it so much, and he said, I, know, I think I have a chance to uh, do this again, give them a, another scare. So he decided to do the uh, scene of Ben Gardner's head. This was after production. So with his own money, he had some people make the side of the boat and he got the head and they did it in Verna Field swimming pool. (laughs) It did get a huge scream and everyone was, you know, even more scared from the Ben Gardner head than the first appearance of the shark. But unfortunately, with that scare, everyone was on their toes by that point. So they didn't react to the shark appearing for the first time. Oh. You can't be too greedy, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But it still works wonderfully. Yep, they're both really solid. Oh, I told you before that there was a dinosaur sound Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when the shark was sinking to the bottom after he was blown up. There's a shot where the fin re-emerges for a second. Okay. And you hear this kind of echoey sound, which is a dinosaur roar from a movie called The Land Unknown. But it's significant also because Spielberg used that same exact sound effect when the truck in Duel flies off the cliff to eventually end the film. And I think in that one, there's a bunch of smoke and it emerges out of the smoke, much like how the shark does in Jaws. And you remember I told you earlier that he felt that Jaws was sort of a sequel to Duel. So he Uh kind of tied it all together with that dinosaur sound. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. So the movie finished. It became the first summer blockbuster. It was booked to play in over a thousand theaters, but the studio cut it back to under 500 because they wanted to make people wait in lines and make it be a real blockbuster. Oh my you know? gosh. Because the, the president of Universal thought that the best publicity was to have a line outside the theater. I suppose. So it did great. It became the most successful movie of all time. Mm -hmm. It opened June 20th, 1975. And it was really one of the biggest marketing campaigns up until that point. Uh, Commercials on TV. Movies didn't really do too much of that before this point. And it has an amazing trailer with that voice. Jaws. See it before you go swimming. As I told you, Verna Fields won an Oscar for editing. It was nominated for four in total. It won three. It won Best Editing, Best Sound, and Best Music by John Williams. Mm -hmm. Now, John Williams, this was really his breakout movie. He had done dozens and dozens of movies before. He won an Oscar before this even for doing Fiddler on the Roof. But that wasn't his own music. It was his uh, arrangement of pre-existing music. But Jaws was like the first blockbuster. It led to all the Spielberg movies. It led to Star Wars. It led to everything. 
it is such a great score. His favorite moment of the score is when they put the barrels on the shark for the first time and you get that adventure music, yeah, you know? Yeah, the hopeful and then, music. Yeah, the hopeful music and then it just kind of dies down as yeah. the barrels go under. Yeah. That's his favorite moment and that that's, that is a, a great moment. Mm-hmm. Bring it on the barrel! I'm coming around again! As you know, the Jaws theme has become one of the most recognizable themes in cinema history. Probably that and Psycho are the two most famous of all time. When Spielberg went to visit John Williams and John Williams played for him on the piano, the theme for the first time, Spielberg laughed and said, okay, well, what is it really? And he's like, no, this is it. Da, 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 da. And he thought he was kidding because it was so simple, but sometimes simple is the best way to go. Yeah. And it just became one of the most classic scores of all time. Yeah, I do. I mean, it does begin with those notes, those few notes. But then once those horns come in and it's just like, oh, it's so yeah. good. So I said they won three Oscars for sound, editing, and music, and the fourth nomination that they didn't win for was Best Picture. Now, usually, a lot of the time, when there's a Best Picture nominee, there should be a Best Directing nominee, but Spielberg did not get nominated. And lots of people were upset about that, and he was upset about that. And he actually had a camera crew on him as they were doing the nominations, and he was so upset, and there's a really funny video of this. Uh, At one point, actor Joe Spinell, who was in Rocky, is so angry, (laughs) and he says, You cannot have the best picture unless the director is also nominated. Who made the picture? Somebody's mother? Director. This man made yours. Are you kidding? Who's kidding who around here? Who made it? The shark? (laughs) (laughs) It's just so good. So the movie became... A phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It inspired a huge wave of similar type movies. Piranha. There's a movie called Orca. You mentioned one. What was it? I think it's called Alligator. Alligator. I mean, nothing comes close to Jaws. No, no, but... no. But there's definitely a sort of like revengey rogue animal movies in the 70s and 80s. And I watched a good deal of them. Yeah. And, you know, it was parodied and referenced in movies. Back to the Future. Shark still looks fake. Another one of my favorites is uh, Piranha 3D. Do you remember? Yeah, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, Richard Dreyfus is basically reprising his role of Matt Hooper yeah. <laughs> in Piranha 3D. He's in his little fishing boat singing the song. Yeah, after the movie was finished, uh, lots of the props came to Universal Studios and was at the Jaws area of the tram tour. The Orca itself used to be there. And when Steven Spielberg, when he would, you know, have rough days, he would go and sit in the Orca for years after and just reflect and think about how he got through the tough times of making Jaws. And uh, one day he was having a particularly bad day and he went to the Orca and Mm -hmm. it was gone. And and he called up a bunch of people and they found out that it was rotting and they just chopped it up and threw it away. And he was livid, very angry. I think he was able to save the wheel, though, the uh, steering wheel. But he was livid. Ben Gardner's boat was there for a long time. I don't think it's there anymore. Yeah, they all just kind of went away. Yeah. And uh, recently, the Academy shared some pictures of the last surviving shark made from the original mold uh, is being refurbished and is going to be on display at their Academy Museum. I'm so excited to see it. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. It's looking really amazing. I want to see that shark up close. (laughs) Like Quint. 
But yeah, so that's uh, the story of Jaws. I, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again. I did. And I hope you guys enjoy going back into the water. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, where can they find us, Anthea? Uh, you can find us at Pods and Monsters on Twitter and Facebook, and we're Pods and Monsters Podcast on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You can also find us at podsandmonsters.com, um, where we have recently updated our, our watch list, which will be going all the way into October, is what we have right now. Take a look at that list and follow along with us. Watch the movies and, you know, leave comments, send us messages, and we'll uh, we'll yeah. talk about it. Share your memories with us of these movies. Like, what did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? Um, whatever you want. So you can reach us there. You can also email us at podsandmonsters at gmail.com um, with any comments, suggestions. And we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts on iTunes. It really helps our podcast get seen and recommended. So we're really enjoying doing this. So we hope that you're enjoying it as well. Yeah. So my name is Robert. My name is Anthea. And we'll see you at the beach. No, I don't go to the beach. Well, this time you will. <laughs> For 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, everybody. <laughs> Happy summertimes. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs>